the History Channel original podcast. Previously on Reconstruction. As Reconstruction loses steam, a pernicious narrative takes hold. The fiction that the Confederacy fought for the noble lost cause of states' rights. The lost cause said the South didn't go to war to keep their slaves. Short answer. And it was a lie. And a hundred years after the Civil War ends, too many Black Americans still don't have the rights that people like Frederick Douglass had been asking for. He's like, freedom means nothing unless African Americans have the right to vote. History This Week, May 26th, 1965. I'm Sally Helm. The Senate session opens with a nod to the cruelty of the world. It comes from the Senate chaplain who offers a prayer. He says all the men in this room are standing in the midst of swift social currents and lurking evil forces whose hideous cruelty stabs our anguished sympathies. The bill up for debate today is about those swift social currents, that hideous cruelty. A bill to enforce the 15th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, the Voting Rights Act. The 15th Amendment was supposed to guarantee voting rights to all men, regardless of race. But many Black voters face unfair obstacles at the polls, especially in the South. They have to pay poll taxes, which burden them disproportionately. They're sometimes kept from voting by mob violence and police violence. One county in Mississippi has 5,561 Black residents, and none are registered to vote. A massive protest movement has been marching against these injustices, demanding that the constitutional right to vote be upheld for all. That's why this bill is on the table today, a bill to enforce a constitutional amendment that already exists, that was ratified way back in 1870. Florida Senator Spessard Holland makes a speech this morning about the 1870s. He says he's the son of a Confederate veteran, the grandson of two, and he calls Reconstruction, which was meant to right the wrongs of slavery, a horrible experience. He quotes a newspaper column that says, when the voting rights bill becomes law, a federal dictatorship will begin. It's the echo of a cry that went up from the South during Reconstruction. Enough with the demands for change. Let's all just move on. But the people arguing for the Voting Rights Act say, look around. Everyone who fought in the Civil War is dead. And every American still doesn't have the right to vote. It is past time to finish what Reconstruction started. Today, the 1960s have been called the second Reconstruction another brief window of opportunity to remake the nation with malice toward none and firmness in the right. How did the forces that opposed the first Reconstruction come roaring back during the second? And would this time be different? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves 
feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It's 1955, 10 years before the U.S. Senate will say yes or no to the Voting Rights Act. And in 1955, the Senate is kind of a dusty, cobwebby organization. Some of the legislators have been hanging around those halls for 30 years. And if there's a physical manifestation of the Senate's vibe, it is the Democratic cloakroom, a place just outside the chambers where the lawmakers conduct their backroom negotiations. It hadn't been painted in some time. Along the walls were leather couches, some that looked worse for wear. That is journalist and author Robert Caro. He spent the past 40-plus years researching the life of Lyndon B. Johnson, a Texas senator who, in 1955, is Senate Majority Leader. Johnson spends a lot of time in the cloakroom. That room revolved around him. He's an imposing figure, six feet, four inches tall. His head was actually massive for his body. He has a southern twang, though when he's negotiating with northerners, his accent gets more clipped. He is a master politician. He had this habitual gesture. He would put one arm around your shoulder. With the other hand, he would grab your lapel, and he'd lean into your face to persuade you of something. And if that senator tried to pull away from him? What Johnson used to do is stick a finger through the buttonhole of the lapel so the guy couldn't leave without pulling his jacket off. <laughs> wow, that is, that is quite a trick. But in 1955, Johnson is confronting a big problem. He's going to need all his best tricks. It has been 90 years since the end of the Civil War. And Congress has not passed a single civil rights bill since Reconstruction. Not to limit segregation, outlaw the poll tax, prevent lynching. An immovable core of Southern senators simply will not let it happen. There's no getting around them. And they're not going to let a civil rights bill get passed. The Senate is the South's revenge for Gettysburg. The Battle of Gettysburg may have secured the Union victory back in 1863. But in 1955, Southern senators are calling the shots, including Lyndon Johnson. Up to this point, he has voted against every single civil rights bill that came his way. But outside the dusty Senate cloakroom, things are changing. The Supreme Court has just issued a momentous decision. Brown versus Board of Education ruling that school segregation, separate but equal, is unconstitutional. This could mean a massive change in the way that Black people and white people in the United States live together, in both the South and the North. To be clear, segregation and discrimination are not just Southern problems. And there are lots of powerful people who do not want this change to happen. One of them is South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond. Thurman is becoming known as one of the most ardent defenders of segregation in the U.S. Senate. That's Claflin University professor Robert Greene II. He told us a few years earlier, 
Thurman had run under a new political party using a Confederate flag as its symbol, a party called the Dixiecrats, or the States' Rights Democratic Party. To say that we have a right to determine how race should be codified in our own states. And if that meant segregation, then so be it. States' rights, Confederate flags, it's the lost cause argument that followed the Civil War dressed in new clothes. And in 1956, Thurman sets out to organize his Southern Democratic colleagues to oppose the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Thurmond is pretty new to Congress. So he turns to a very established Southern colleague, Senator Harry Byrd of Virginia. Old Harry, as other senators call him. Old Harry does not support integration. So in 1956, he and Thurmond put together a statement the Southern Manifesto. Where they're laying out their opposition to any civil rights legislation, opposition to the Brown Board, and saying that the South will speak with one voice. At least the anti-civil rights South, as it's represented in the Senate. But at this same time, 1956, Something big is happening down in Alabama. ...into service as blacks in Montgomery continue to boycott the buses week after week, month after month. There's a boycott going on to pressure leaders to strike down segregation on city buses. It's led by a young minister, a relative unknown. ...focuses national attention on its leader, a 27-year-old Baptist minister, Martin Luther King, Jr., Lyndon Johnson sees what's happening in Alabama, and he is a savvy politician. He's aware the Democratic Party, sooner or later, is going to have to take a forceful stance on civil rights. They need the Black vote in the North and the West to help them in critical Senate elections and in a presidential election as well. And it just so happens that Johnson himself is planning to run for president in 1960. So when he hears about this manifesto circulating, he hangs back. To Caro's mind, this is not pure political calculation. Johnson is a complicated figure. And though his voting record hasn't reflected it so far, he did have personal sympathies towards civil rights. He'd been a teacher near the U.S.-Mexico border to help pay his way through college, and he'd grown close to those kids. Johnson says, you know, I swore that if I ever had the power, I'd help them one day. And now I have the power, and I mean to use it. In the end, Byrd, Thurmond, and 99 other Southern legislators sign the Southern Manifesto. But Lyndon Johnson doesn't. He doesn't condemn it either. He tries to maintain his political maneuvering room because he has set his sights on the impossible. He wants to be the one, after 80-plus years, to finally push a civil rights bill through Congress. Studying the career of Lyndon Johnson, you say, this is, in a way, the very height of political power. It seems absolutely impossible to get a civil rights bill through. So to watch Johnson try is, for me, fascinating. In the spring and summer of 1957, Johnson is trying to crack the nut that is this civil rights bill. And that previously unknown minister, Martin Luther King Jr., has taken his movement beyond the buses in Montgomery. The movement won that fight, 
the Supreme Court has ruled that segregation on public buses is illegal. And now King is talking about what he sees as one of the biggest issues holding back Black Americans, the right to vote. Remember, that right is already supposed to exist, but... In many instances in the South, Black people were basically prevented from voting. Howard University professor Clarence Lusane has researched this subject professionally. And he's heard stories from his grandmother, who worked at the Alabama polls. She was one of literally probably a few hundred people out of tens of thousands uh, in her area who could actually vote. At the time, there are lots of barriers to voting. In Louisiana, voting clerks can ask things like, who pays for the mail carrier? And turn away any Black voter who doesn't get the right answer. In Mississippi, Black voters might have to answer the almost philosophical question, how many bubbles in a bar of soap? And so maybe it's no wonder that only about 5% of adult Black Mississippians are on the voter rolls. In May of 1957, King addresses a crowd on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial for a speech that announces his big demand. Give us the ballot. Voting rights. He's saying, let Black voters elect our representatives. They'd be pretty different from the people who are in there now. They'd be... Men who will not sign a Southern manifesto because of their devotion to the manifesto of justice. Voting is seen as really a way to bring about some changes. Those are changes that the Southern Democrats do not want to see. Which means, if you're Lyndon Johnson, it's going to be hard to get them to support your civil rights bill. As he sees it, getting Northern liberals on his side won't be so hard. He can make them happy if he's able to pass something, anything, even if it's symbolic. At least it'll be the first civil rights bill since Reconstruction. Robert Caro told us, to the Southern conservative Democrats, Johnson says, You know, if you don't let a little voting rights bill go through, the Northerners are going to take enough of a majority in the next election to really put a bill that you don't want against uh, segregation in social places and restaurants and movies, etc. He's saying, let's give them a slice of bread, not the whole loaf. The civil rights bill working its way through Congress would create a commission to track discriminatory voting practices, and it would give the federal government power to get involved to fix things but it wouldn't do anything as radical as outlawing segregation. And then, to really sweeten the deal for Southern legislators, Johnson shaves that slice down to a crumb. He proposes an amendment, one that guarantees that any violations of the bill will be decided by local juries. In the Deep South, those juries are much less likely to convict. Northern liberals don't want this jury amendment, they see that it'll gut the bill. And Southerners are worried about bringing it to a vote. Convincing both sides to get behind it takes a whole lot of cloakroom activity. Along one wall of the cloakroom was a line of telephone booths. Johnson would call his secretary over. And he'd say, line them up for me. And she would put three or four or five senators all waiting for his call. With one phone receiver in each hand, Johnson listens as the senators talk. And all you hear from Johnson is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you can almost see it click in his mind. This is what the guy really wants. Uh, this is what he's afraid will happen to him. 
and he plays on that. He's able to find just the right thing to say, the right compromise to offer, to get someone on his side. It's a gift, but it's a gift that's more than a gift. It's a talent, but it's more than a talent. The right word is genius. Just after midnight on August 2nd, all of Johnson's maneuvering pays off. His jury amendment passes. Jackie Robinson, the famed Black baseball player, telegrams the White House, voicing the concerns of many civil rights supporters. We disagree that half a loaf is better than none. But with the jury amendment in place, the House approves the civil rights bill. The next day, it's just up to the Senate. Johnson has enough votes from his Democratic colleagues locked in before debate opens that day. But there's a holdout, Strom Thurmond, who decides to try to stop the bill by himself with a filibuster. To actually hold up a bill in Congress, you have to stay on the floor of the Senate or the House. You have to keep speaking and speaking and speaking. Robert Greene II again. Can't leave, you can't ask for a break. So he has to have food brought to him drink brought to him. And of course, I think folks listening to this are probably wondering, well, how do you go to the bathroom? Well, he had a bottle brought to him for that purpose, too. He could not leave the floor of the Senate. He's reading aloud the voting rights laws of each state in alphabetical order. Then he moves on to the Declaration of Independence, then the Bill of Rights. So he's making arguments about individual liberties. He's making arguments about states' rights. He's combining these two arguments to say, that really Jim Crow was designed to help both races. It's relentless. He speaks for over 24 hours, the longest filibuster in U.S. history. But Thurman can talk all he wants. Lyndon Johnson has the votes. On August 29th, the bill finally passes. It's a huge victory for Johnson proof that the right person can get Southern senators to compromise. But... A lot of civil rights leaders at the time thought it was a tragedy that he weakened the bill to get it through. Johnson said, once we pass it, we could always go back and fix it. The day he hears the bill has passed, Dr. Martin Luther King puts his thoughts to paper. I have come to the conclusion that the present bill is far better than no bill at all. Inadequate legislation, supported by mass action, can accomplish more than adequate legislation which remains unenforced. And over the next few years, mass action will be the foundation of Dr. King's work. It's 1963. Almost six years have passed since Johnson pushed that civil rights bill through Congress. He's now in the West Wing, vice president to John F. Kennedy. He was chosen partly because he's a Southerner to balance out the ticket not unlike Andrew Johnson a century before. The Kennedy-Johnson administration has not passed a single civil rights bill. So King makes a move. He targets Birmingham, Alabama as the place for his next mass action. Well, Birmingham is a symbol of hardcore resistance to integration. The city's public safety commissioner, Bull Connor, is a committed segregationist willing to use violence to maintain the status quo. Commissioner Connor has said repeatedly that he'll never back down. Lerone A. Martin, director of Stanford's Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute, said that the way King sees it, 
That violence is everywhere in America. A lot of people just don't like to think about it. What King sees his mobilization doing is dramatizing something that America has lived with but loves to ignore. King decides, let's show up peacefully in Birmingham, demand that our rights be respected, and make sure that the cameras are watching. The response? Sicking dogs on them, children being sprayed. City police were carrying out their pledge to fill their jails to capacity if necessary. King is able to use media to fill the nightly news with these images so that all of America can see the type of day-to-day violence of white supremacy. This campaign works. Two months after King himself is arrested in Birmingham, President Kennedy proposes a new civil rights bill, one that would end segregation in public spaces and ban discrimination of all kinds. He says the events in Birmingham are too much to ignore. Congress needs to act. Progress. But then, just a few hours later, backlash. Civil rights leader Medgar Evers is shot and killed in Mississippi. The civil rights bill faces immediate pushback in Congress, including from, yes, Strom Thurmond, who says the government has no business getting involved in private establishments. Other senators pile onto that argument. Months after Kennedy's speech, the bill is still frozen in place. And then... A dark page in the annals of America has been written to the crack of an assassin's bullet. President Kennedy is shot and killed. Now, it's up to Lyndon Johnson to decide what he wants to do about this civil rights bill. Does he side with Thurmond, a fellow Southern Democrat, or King, the national leader of the civil rights movement? And as he weighs his options, before he's even moved into the White House, Lyndon Johnson makes a pivotal phone call. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. November 1963. President Kennedy has been assassinated in Dallas. Here's Robert Caro. And they all fly back together on the plane, the Coffin and Lyndon Johnson. 
Three days after Johnson returns to Washington as president of the United States, he gets on the phone with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The call was recorded. But I won't tell you how grateful I am and how, how worthy I'm going to try to be of all your hopes. Well, thank you very much. I'm so happy to hear that. And I'm King takes the opportunity to plant an idea. I think one of the great uh, tributes that we can pay in memory of President Kennedy is to try to enact some of the great uh, progressive policies that he sought to initiate. Well, I'm going to support them all, and you can count on that. And, uh, this idea lingers with Johnson. He's drafting his first presidential address. He isn't even in the Oval Office yet. He's working out of his house. Johnson's upstairs at his home in Spring Valley in the D.C. suburbs. His speechwriters are downstairs at a kitchen table working on this congressional address. And Johnson comes down in the bathrobe and he says something like, how are we doing? And what they say to him is, listen, the only thing we're really all agreed on is don't make a pitch for civil rights. Kennedy's bill is sitting in limbo. Johnson's speechwriters tell him, It's a noble cause, but it's a lost cause. Don't fight for it. Johnson says to them, well, what the hell is the presidency for then? When Johnson addresses the Senate on November 27th, back on the floor he knows so well, he takes his cue not from his speechwriters, but from Dr. King. No memorial oration or eulogy could more eloquently honor President Kennedy's memory than the earliest possible passage of the Civil Rights Bill for which he fought so long. It's the top of his agenda, a tribute to Kennedy, just like King suggested. And Caro told us, to get it passed, Johnson has to turn to that long-serving Virginia Senator, Harry Byrd, the one who helped Thurmond with his Southern Manifesto, Old Harry. Here is where Johnson's political savvy is about to pay off. Back when he'd first joined the Senate as a brash, loud-talking Texan, Harry Byrd hadn't much liked him. But Johnson knew even way back then, in the late 1940s, that he couldn't afford to be on Byrd's bad side. The Virginia senator was too powerful. Someday, Johnson would need Byrd to help him out. And so Johnson had formed a relationship with Byrd at a key moment back in 1952. Byrd's daughter had suddenly died. And Johnson was one of the only senators to show up at the funeral, which was 73 miles out of town in the pouring rain. When Johnson says, you know, we were standing on one side of the open grave when they lowered the coffin in and Harry Byrd was standing directly across from us. And he looked up for a minute, and he saw me. And he looked back down, and then he looked up at me again for a long time. I don't know exactly what that look meant, but it meant a lot. Flash forward to 1963. Johnson is about to call on that goodwill at one of the most important moments of his political life. Byrd, at this time, is chairman of the Finance Committee, and he's holding up a tax bill, which might sound unrelated to civil rights, but it's not. Byrd wants the Senate to drop the civil rights bill, or at least dramatically weaken it. So he's using the tax bill as leverage 
the Senate can't move on to civil rights as long as Byrd's tax bill is on the table. And if the tax bill doesn't pass, it could plunge the country into a recession. Byrd is refusing to let it come to a vote unless the civil rights bill is gutted. So Lyndon Johnson invites Harry Byrd to the White House. Over a lunch of potato soup, a Byrd favorite, Johnson makes an offer. He says, listen, what if I cut down the federal budget for you? Byrd is an economic conservative, and this is one of his biggest goals. So he says, okay, if you do that, I'll stop holding the tax bill hostage. But it's still not clear that the tax bill will pass. And remember, the tax bill must pass so the Senate can move on to the civil rights bill. Johnson needs to convince three swing votes to go his way. So he does what he does best. He tells his secretary, Line them up for me. I have Senator Hartke. Each call takes mere minutes. He uses flattery. You, you get in there and get in that meeting and take this leadership. I know you win if you fight for it. He appeals to reason, saying, look at the bigger picture here. They're going to be judging us whether we can pass the tax bill or not and whether we got prosperity. He's not afraid to strong arm a little. And you go with us on this excise thing and let us get a bill. God damn it, you, you need to vote with me once in a while, just one time. Well, look, I made a commitment to president. Let me say this. This last senator is a holdout. He says, I can't change my vote. It'll look bad to my constituents. And Johnson says to him, you save my face today. I'll save your face tomorrow. Let me see how I can work it out. Well, you just work it out. Now, don't say how. I don't give a damn about the details. That senator changes his vote. So do the other two. I'll try it. All right, now do it. I will. All right. Johnson has done it. He changes the vote in something like 11 minutes. These three calls. So now he calls up Harry Byrd, who still has to be the one to call the committee meeting to vote on this. Johnson pleads with the man who's had a soft spot for him ever since he stood beside him at his daughter's grave. Help me, Harry. Byrd does. He calls the vote at the right moment, and he even casts his own vote in favor of the bill. He calls Johnson's office. They can't get him on the phone. So Harry Byrd says to his secretary, basically, we had the vote. It's nine to eight the way Lyndon wants it. My vote was the one that carried it his way. Wonderful. <laughs> and he's so proud of himself. You know, it's an old man. With the tax bill out of the way, the Senate stage is set to take up Kennedy's civil rights bill. And after lots of phone calls, promises, threats, a little lapel holding, Johnson gets the votes. There are a lot of reasons that the 64 Act went through, but a key reason is that Harry Byrd would do things for Lyndon Johnson that he wouldn't do for anyone else. The 1964 Civil Rights Act is a landmark victory for the movement. After Johnson signs it in July 1964, he hands his pens to the people standing beside him, including Dr. Martin Luther King. Integration leader Martin Luther King receives his pen, a gift he said he would cherish. 1964 is also an election year. This bill is passed just four months before Johnson will be on the ballot, for the first time at the top of the ticket. And with the bill, he is making a momentous pledge. I am a civil rights candidate. The Democrats are now the party of civil rights. That September, Martin Luther King makes his only public presidential endorsement. He vows to launch an all-out effort for Lyndon Johnson and against his opponent, 
Republican Barry Goldwater. Here's Robert Green II. What Goldwater and other conservative Republicans are arguing within the party now is that they're struggling to win national elections because they're basically writing off the entire South. The South had been solidly Democratic since the Civil War. But with Johnson and other Democrats now supporting civil rights, Goldwater sees an opportunity. He votes against the 1964 Civil Rights Act, rejecting it as an act of government overreach. Senator Strom Thurmond absorbs this new reality and switches to the Republican Party, which gives permission to other Southerners who had been voting Democrat forever to reevaluate. Once Thurmond makes his party switch, you start to see many white Southerners becoming more and more comfortable with the Republican Party. Johnson wins in a historic landslide. But for the changing Republican Party, the 1964 election is a sign of things to come. It's the first time since Reconstruction that Republicans win deep South states like Georgia and South Carolina. The South is no longer a solidly Democratic region. Johnson's 1964 civil rights bill has set off a major realignment in American politics. But Johnson is going back to the White House, victorious. And Dr. King now turns his attention back to the issue that he has been raising for years. An issue that still has not been addressed, even by the vast 1964 Civil Rights Act. The right to vote. Stripping away poll taxes and literacy tests, ensuring equal access to the ballot. King goes to Johnson, his ally, and says, where is this bill? Lerone Martin told us Johnson tells King, Look, I just got through the civil rights bill. Voting rights is just going to have to wait. So Martin, I need you to slow down. I'll do it, but not now. And of course, for King, I mean, being told not now or to wait almost always means never. So King turns once again to mass action in a place where the voting issue is front and center. Selma, Alabama. African-Americans there make up the majority of the population, but only 1% of eligible Black voters are on the voting rolls. African-Americans were experiencing voter intimidation, violence, being beaten. Many had lost their job for standing in line to register to vote. On Sunday, March 7th, a group of marchers sets off across a bridge named for a Confederate general, the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Robert Caro described what happens next. You see these state troopers with bullwhips riding their horses into the crowd of peaceful protesters. The attacks are horrific. ABC News interrupts its evening program to broadcast the footage. Protests explode across the nation, including outside the Johnson White House. You can hear their chants where he's having dinner with his wife and daughters And outside, they're chanting, LBJ, just you wait. See what happens in 68. Johnson listens and decides to address a joint session of Congress. On the drive to the Capitol, he sits in the back seat of his motorcade, going over his speech. The reading light over his shoulder, facing him are three of his speechwriters. But he doesn't talk. He's so concentrating on the speech. That night, Johnson stands up in Congress and says, A century has passed, more than a hundred years, 
since the Negro was free. And he is not fully free tonight. The anthem of the civil rights movement was we shall overcome. And Johnson says, it's not just they who must overcome. But really, it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. Martin Luther King is sitting in the living room of one of his supporters, and all his aides said they had never seen Martin Luther King cry. When Lyndon Johnson says, we shall overcome, Martin Luther King starts to cry. Johnson says he's going to send a voting rights bill to Congress. And a few days later, King leads some 3,600 marchers on that same route from Selma to Montgomery. This time, President Johnson has sent Army and National Guard forces to protect them. They march right across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, down Jefferson Davis Highway, and four days later, end their march in the city where Davis himself was once inaugurated president of the Confederacy. It's there that King addresses a crowd of nearly 50,000 and says the words that have since been quoted countless times. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. With the nation's eyes on Selma, King has done it, proven that we need a Voting Rights Act now. And five months later, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is signed into law. It builds on what came before it. It enforces the 15th Amendment, which was passed as part of the first Reconstruction. It makes use of the 1957 Civil Rights Act, which set up a commission on civil rights to measure voting violations. That's a key part of this new law. And it has a huge impact. By the end of 1965, a quarter of a million new Black voters are registered all over the country. This victory is held up as the pinnacle of the second Reconstruction. But law professor Wilfred Codrington III told us it's not the end of the story. Reconstruction tends to be two step forward and the period after Reconstruction seems to be a step back, maybe a step and a half. So that's the lost cause after the first one, right? That's Jim Crow after the first one. Not because the laws passed during those times weren't good laws. We get these awesome provisions protecting equality and citizenship and outlawing slavery and enforcing the right to vote. That's all words. And you still need a willing and able government to safeguard them. Not all Americans were ready for racial equality. The backlash to the Voting Rights Act of 1965 does eventually come. It takes the form of new insidious methods of voter disenfranchisement. The Voting Rights Act itself has been pared back in recent years by the Supreme Court, stripped of a provision requiring states with a history of disenfranchisement to get federal approval of new voting laws before enforcing them. And so the pattern continues. Progress. Backlash. Regroup. And push for progress again. It's never going to be perfect. The point of this is that we want to move towards a more perfect, knowing that it is elusive 
we need to just continue this fight to ensure that everybody can participate as broadly as possible. And we should always be chasing that target. We should always be pushing towards that more perfect union. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. The Reconstruction miniseries was reported and produced by Julia Press. Julia is in the booth with me one last time to thank the people who helped us put it together. Hey, Julia. Hi, Sally. Thank you to you and to everyone else who supported this miniseries. It was story edited by Mary Knopf and Jim O'Grady and sound designed by Brian Flood. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Morgan Givens, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. We want to give a very special thanks to all of the guests who you heard from on today's episode. Robert Caro, author of the Years of Lyndon Johnson series. You know, we only have an hour, and I know the master of the Senate audiobook is 54 hours, so we had better hop in and get started. (laughs) Wilfred Codrington III, assistant professor of law at Brooklyn Law School, fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice, and co-author of The People's Constitution, 200 Years, 27 Amendments, and the Promise of a More Perfect Union. Robert Green II, assistant professor of history at Claflin University, and co-editor of Invisible No More, the African-American Experience at the University of South Carolina. Clarence Lusane, professor and former chairman of Howard University's Department of Political Science and author of The Black History of the White House. And Lerone A. Martin, the Martin Luther King Jr. Centennial Professor in Religious Studies and director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. You can find links to their work along with other sources that we consulted and suggested further reading on our website history.com slash reconstruction. I also want to thank Edward Ayers, David Blight, Heather Cox Richardson, Adam Dombey, Joseph Lowndes, William Sturkey, and Zebulon Maletsky, and all the other experts who I spoke to on background for this series. And thanks to you, Julia, for making all of those many calls. And thanks again to everyone else who helped us put this series together. Listeners, we would love to hear from you about this series or anything else. Send us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Thank you again for listening to this miniseries. We'll be back next week with a regular episode of History This Week. See you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.